beginning in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Ennon near Silene, because the water was plentiful there, and because or, and people were coming to be baptized, for John had not yet been put into prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words, words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. Lord. We want to hear your words today. We want to think your thoughts, Lord. And so we ask for you to be pleased to fill everyone who listens to this with your Holy Spirit. That we might receive what you would have us to hear from this passage, Lord, and you alone. Your sheep know your voice, Lord, and I pray that I would just simply be a mouthpiece for you and that uh, everyone listening, and myself included, would hear your voice in this passage and that we would be reminded of our place in all matters spiritual, and that's that you must increase and we must de decrease. Lord, we want to give you all the glory that's due your name, and so we ask that you would indeed lead us to that place of seeing you as the grand and glorious and magnificent God that you are, that is described here in this text, over and above all things. Thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Well, even though we're a small little congregation, it hasn't stopped 
many big, large ministries from sending me either periodically things in the mail or most typically anymore, email blasts saying, ooh, dynamic preacher, come in your area. Don't you want to have him? He did this and he does that and he's been over here and look at all the stuff that he's done. And, and I get these daily, daily, every morning when I get up, there's one or two of these kind of things in my email box. Probably over the years we've bought things or have, you know, subscribed to certain email lists and of course some shameful little ministry to make a few bucks sold my email account to some other big ministry and of course that's how it got out there. But it doesn't matter that we're who we are, all they care about is their email blasts and, you know, probably sending to their donors. So we sent out 100,000 emails this month alone, you know, kind of thing. <coughs> But it shocks me nearly every single time. I don't know why it still does this, and it kind of was annoying. And then I read this for the first time last week, but it struck me Monday of this week that what I read in these emails and what we find in this text is quite topsy-turvy. The emails that I receive are this minister has preached this many sermons to this many crowds in this many countries. He's written this many books or she has ministered in these particular areas to these particular, you know, marginalized people groups for decades on end. And she sings all these songs. Oh, you've probably heard them on the radio and on and on and on it goes. And it speaks more to our consumer culture than it actually does the biblical faithfulness of the ministry of these people. I'm not calling them carnal or sinful. They certainly might be. And they certainly might not be. And they might just have an overzealous person who's running their particular email <clears throat> blasters and is, you know, kind of pumping up their credentials. But what we find here with one of the most unique individuals in all of history, John the Baptist, who Jesus himself said, up to this point, there's never been a greater man born than John the Baptist. That, that, that tells us something very important and what it should do, along with humbling us, that we're not nearly as great as we think we are, I certainly am humbled by it. But what it does is it helps me to get my proper perspective. And my proper perspective is the same perspective that John had. Now, this is a very God-centered perspective. For him to be able to say the things that he's doing here in this passage means that John's thoughts were more heavenward and more focused and stayed on God than I would dare say I've ever had a day in my entire life being this God-centered. I, I, I am grateful that we have a personal snapshot of John the Baptist here in the midst of Jesus's ministry and Jesus's working um, because it does help for perspective. It's so easy and as pastor and anybody who's been in the ministry knows, 
if you encounter anybody else in the ministry anywhere, one of the first things they're going to want to know and they're going to ask is, so how big is your ministry? Now, there's a few things. Let me break that down. First of all, how big? They're wanting either a number in terms of a financial number or in terms of a body count or both maybe. But they ask, how big? And then the next phrase inevitably comes, is your ministry? Now, I know what they mean. And I know that it's a generally well-intentioned question. But this is not my ministry. You know, when, wow, when I started Sovereign Joy, it wasn't because I had this big and great and grand vision of, you know, well, what we need here is we need definitely a church in the city of Chico that's able to preach the gospel from a historical Reformed Baptist perspective. Certainly that's needed, and it still is needed today. There's no denying that. In fact, it'd be wonderful if there was six, seven, eight churches in the city of Chico, more than that, that, you know, were the, that we could be co-belligerents together in so many ways. But that wasn't the reason why. I had a small little Sunday night Bible study that I did in the front room of my house, and there was probably, I don't know, 12, 15 people that regularly came along with a few other people who would pop in and out from time to time. So it was nice to have a big front room because we could accommodate that many people pretty much. Then one Sunday, these people who came from all different churches, and at that time I was attending um, a church where I wasn't even really ministering at the church, just attending there. And they said, look, Pat, we see you as our pastor because this is the place we come to hear the word of God and to get filled and, and we get the word of God here. They were getting God. They were hearing something here that they weren't hearing at their own churches that they were either members or attenders at. And that was a God word centered message, a God word focused message. They, what they were hearing in these other places was certainly some maybe good principles to live by. Maybe even a message of holiness and righteousness. And those are all important things. Don't misunderstand me. But when they're to the exclusion of you glorifying God with your life and all you are and your being focused to God and to Jesus Christ and the focus is on you and better <coughs> you, inevitably you are going to end up becoming your own God. Suddenly, you might not even understand or see that that's what's happening. But when a true Christian hears a richly saturated, God-centered message, it is infectious because that's what we were born again for, the glory and the worship of God. And this is what these people were hearing when they were coming to this Bible study. And so they asked me, would you be willing to start a church? Because this is something we're not getting from anywhere else. And we did, and here we are. And We've been doing it for, you know, thir almost thir going on 13 years now. Um, and hopefully what we would still be doing to this day, in fact, hopefully we'd be doing it better now than we did 13 years ago or eight years ago or six years ago or last year, would be that we would have a similar perspective that John does, that I would have a similar perspective that John does, and that our heart's desire for all of us that we do here would be that we would be pointing people ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever more to Jesus, to Jesus, to Jesus, to Jesus. 
that that would truly be the legacy of sovereign children. In fact, I would hope that it would be the legacy of Christian churches, that they would be so Godward focused, so Jesus focused, that we could honestly say with integrity and without speaking out of both sides of our mouths, Christ must increase and I must decrease. I, I mean, I, I genuinely would love it if there was a way where I could preach and not be up here in front. Does, does that make sense? Where you're appointed to Christ, but it isn't through me. The problem is, is it's not a problem. It's the means by which God has ordained his preaching to come forth. But the danger is, is that you would be hearing my words rather than Christ's words. And he is the good shepherd, not Pat Mathers. I'm an under-shepherd. And so my duty is to point people to the good shepherd. And that you would hear his voice. So... What we desire as a church is, and what I desire as a pastor, I find much common ground here in this particular text. It's, it's a text that I have read many times in my own ministry, and it's a text that I find myself thinking on regularly. And of course, verse 30, because I've already quoted it at least four or five different times. We haven't even got there yet in the text. But to begin with, so Jesus... Leaves. I only want to spend a couple of minutes on 22 through 24. Uh, Jesus leaves Jerusalem there after the Passover and goes out into the Judean countryside. He goes east towards the Jordan, and he goes with his disciples and begins baptizing. Now, he isn't actually the one who does the baptizing. We see that look in the very next chapter, chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees, pardon me, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea again and departed for Galilee. So Jesus himself wasn't the one that was actually doing the baptizing, but his disciples. I mean, can you imagine? I was baptized by Jesus. Who were you baptized by? Bartholomew. <laughs> oh, you cutie. Right? I mean, you know, come on, that's exactly what people would do. We find in the book of 1 Corinthians, people are fighting over, I'm a Paul, I'm an Apollos, well, I'm a Peter. <laughs> well, I'm of Christ. Right? There's always that. There's always going to be those kind of people. So you can imagine that being the case. So Jesus himself, I think, wisely wasn't, uh, obviously wasn't baptizing anybody. But they went out because there was much water there. Side note, that's why we're Baptists. Moving on. John was also baptizing because there was plentiful water there. Didn't need to get sprinkled. Again, a little shot. Now, a discussion arose between, oh, another little historical side note here, verse 24. John had not yet been put into prison. If you read the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, for example, in chapter 4 goes from uh, verse, I believe it is 12 to 13, or maybe it's 11 to 12. Anyways, and you read that text, and John is doing stuff, and then he's immediately in jail. And you think, okay, well, this happens here. But there's this extended period of time where stuff, ministry took place before he was put in jail. And this is kind of the, the I don't know, the, the behind the scenes, as it were, that John is giving for anybody who's read the Synoptic Gospels. So John is assuming that the Gospels have been read and understood 
by his readers. This is one of the cases in point that leads us to that. Okay, moving on to verse 25, the nitty and the gritty. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. So they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Now, you can certainly hear in that text the ring of jealousy. You can hear that the disciples of John the Baptist are, for some reason, even though John had been pointed, even they bear witness. You're, you've been talking about him, and now all of a sudden everyone's going out to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Yeah, they're going out to him because the ministry that John even had himself was given to him from heaven. God is not obligated to give anybody a big, huge, fancy ministry. In fact, I would argue that there are people whom God absolutely loves and is saved by his precious grace, and he has given them particular things to do, and perhaps the one thing that they had been working for their entirety of all of their lives is bound up in a singular moment. And in that moment, they glorify God the best, and everything else is just them living out their lives, just a mundane existence for the glory of God. Think of one particular preacher who was in New England during the time of the um, Great Awakening, not the Fake Awakening, but the Great Awakening, and... He was ministering there in, in a similar way to Jonathan Edwards. And of course, when you think of the Great Awakening, his is the first name that comes to mind, or at least it should. But this one minister, and I can't even remember his name now off the top of my head, but he had set up a series of revival meetings. And, and many people were coming out to this thing, but there was nothing happening in the terms of what was going on around Jonathan Edwards and his ministry. And then in one singular week, <clears throat> revival broke out. The spirit showed up and, and people were saved radically. Nearly the whole town was. And then that was it. He went back to ministering in obscurity and had just went back to preaching normal sermons. No other move of the spirit ever came or ever went after this one particular moment in time. You can imagine the difficulty for that man dealing with all of this and then, oh no, we got all these people coming and then all of a sudden they're off and going to something else and here he's back to doing his mundane thing. And we don't know what the purpose and the plan was for that. Why would God do that for him and this for Jonathan Edwards? And we want to scrutinize that and go, well, Jonathan Edwards, he was a steady man. He was a this, he was a that. And maybe this guy wasn't. And we want to try to figure out the plans and the purposes of God. Listen, God owes you nothing. It's by grace you have been saved. It's by grace that you breathe. It's by grace that you live. It's by grace that you minister. It's by grace that I minister. 
God owes me nothing. He does not owe me a platform to speak. He does not owe me any type of um, ability to get up and talk. He doesn't owe me numbers. He doesn't owe me. When somebody says, how big is your church? I, my response should be, well, God doesn't owe me anything. So I, it's not my church and they're not my numbers. Of course, I don't say that because I don't want to be rude to dude or chick or woman, whatever the person is asking me that. But no one can receive anything unless it's been given to him from heaven. So whoever watches this and listens to this, wherever you're at in the world, if you have one person that you sit across from the table of and have coffee with each and every week, that's been given to you from heaven. Pour your life, pour your soul into that, pour your heart into that, and receive it as a gift from God that he is using you for his glory. And that one life is enough for you to be accountable before when you stand before God in heaven. You don't need hundreds of people. You don't need thousands of people. I mean, good night. I wouldn't know what to do with that. I mean, I think it's a grace that God hasn't given us hundreds and thousands of people. Who knows? Maybe someday I'll pour out a spirit. And maybe someday he won't. He doesn't. It's okay. It's okay either way. I'm as comfortable preaching to four as I could be to 400. And I've been to four, preached to 4,000 before. It doesn't have anything to do with who's in front of me. I'm accountable to my faithfulness before God because he has given me this ministry to steward. And that's what I'm responsible for. I have nothing except it's been given to me by God from heaven. So it's crazy to hear things like, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. I'm of Piper, I'm of MacArthur. I'm of Lee Duncan, I'm of whatever. I really like Mark Dever. But when we do those things, we need to remember that they too have been given ministries only by the grace of God. And it's only been given to them from heaven. And they're accountable before God for the ministries that they have. They're not accountable to me or to anybody else. They're solely accountable to the Lord. And we read their books and we study their methods, but at the end of the day, it's God who gives the increase. And God is the one who does the work in these people's lives. In 1 Corinthians, in chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 6, Paul says, I have appealed all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, then why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You see, this is the dilemma that I see in those emails that I get. Boasting in things that they have done, accomplishments that they have achieved. Why do we boast in it as if we hadn't received it from the Lord? It's the Lord who has given us this particular ministry, whatever it might be. We're accountable to him. We did not do it. So as much as we can, and I have on my, well, not shelves at home, but I have over in my bookshelves, books on church method and church planning and church strategy, and there's some helpful things in there, and I, I might go back and read them from time to time, and I might read some of the ones that I know are in error just to make sure that I avoid certain pitfalls that come up in the ministry. I need to continually 
have my attention refocused and my gaze pointed back to Jesus Christ, knowing that I have nothing except he has been the one who's given it to me. John goes on in verse 28, you yourselves bear witness to me that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Then he gives this wonderful illustration. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. The bride and the bridegroom. We find this um, illustration used throughout the New Testament. It's in Ephesians chapter 5. It's a favorite passage that we all have gone to from time to time to, you know, look at that particular concept. Revelation chapter 21 has the city coming down from heaven as a bride adorned for her bridegroom. And I personally think that it's not a physical city, but it's the church being ultimately there at the second coming of Christ, reunited with the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And so you have this imagery all throughout the New Testament. Um, Matthew chapter 9 Um, There's a question about fasting, and uh, the disciples again of John came to him and said, Why do the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is not with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. And then he goes on from there. But even Jesus himself uses this language and likens himself to this bridegroom. And I remember one of my very favorite moments of my adult life was being a part of Joel and Ellen's wedding, something I think about often. A silly little side note is it was wonderful to not have to do anything. I wasn't the best man, and I wasn't the minister who officiated. I just got to be there, and I got to, like John says here, have my joy be complete. Totally enjoyed it. Just got to live in this moment. Yeah, these people are getting married. I don't love this so much. This is the best. This is the best. I didn't have to think about or focus on anything else. It was all be just happening here in front of me, and I got to enjoy the moment. And that that is a silly illustration, I get. But it, this is what I think when I hear this. And how ridiculous would it have been for me? in that moment to stop the wedding and for me to go, now let's talk a little bit about being here. (laughs) Number one, Ellen would stab me with something probably, and Joe might too, appropriately so. But the whole point is that wedding had nothing to do with me. And it shouldn't have. It shouldn't have had anything to do with me. My joy was complete in two other people experiencing the bliss of holy matrimony. And I just got to be there and be like, yeah, I love these two. I love this absolutely wonderful time that I'm getting to be a part of here. And John here is trying to get that focus onto his disciples to say, look, the bridegroom is joining with his bride. All all are going out to him, and that's wonderful. That's exactly what we want to happen. We're here standing on the sidelines maybe dressed up a little bit. We're excited to just be a part of the thing. But the fact of the matter is it's all about Jesus and his bride. It's not about us. And it would be wholly inappropriate for John's disciples 
or John himself to have made this moment about himself. It's about Jesus. This joy of mine is now complete. In Malachi, there's this wonderful passage here at the very end of the book in chapter 4, just before Matthew. So if you get to Matthew and flip a page, you'll probably have that blank page and then the page that says the New Testament. But it's right before that. In chapter 4, it says, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming, and it shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out leaping like calves from a stall. What a wonderful, vivid image. That's a viral video waiting to be filmed there, right? The sun coming up in the morning and a little calf just leaping from its stalls with joy. And the point here Malachi is saying is when we see the Lord coming and when he comes with all of his glory, we're going to be this joyful over his coming, even though there's going to be wrath for those who aren't right with God. And really, that's what we see here in this text. The joy of John's is now complete because he sees Jesus. John is the one who's leaping out of his stall at the morning sun of righteousness. But there are those who do not receive the Lord's testimony. There are those who do not obey the Son and do not see life. And the wrath of God remains upon him. And for those of us who are Christ, we rejoice in the fact that he has seen fit to save us from our sins and save us from such a wrath and such a time. And that's what brings us this wonderful joy that John can say it's now complete. My joy is now complete because of Jesus. He's the bridegroom. The church is his bride. He's the one who's come and he is the one who has not only fulfilled all righteousness, but he is giving righteousness to his own people. And John says, therefore, because he's the bridegroom, because he is the son of righteousness, he must increase, and I, I must decrease. What a contrast. What a contrast to so many personality-driven ministries. You know, so many of them are shameful. And so many of them, I think, you know, that they're... they're they might be well-intentioned, but the fact of the matter is, is that there are so many people out there that are so self-centered and want you to be them-centered that really they're doing a disservice to the kingdom of God and doing a disservice to Christ. But let's not focus on them so much. Let's now take a good hard look at ourselves. Do I desire to decrease? Do you desire to decrease? That's a tough question for a person to ask. Because if I'm perfectly honest, there are times where, no, I kind of like attention. I kind of like, you know, people acknowledging me. 
every once in a while, you know, most of the time, I, people go, oh, Pastor Pat, Pastor Pat, Pastor Pat, and they're, or they're very formal, or Reverend Mathers, that's even weirder. But every once in a while, you know, they, somebody will say it, and, and my heart, my sinful tendency, will go, ooh, that sounded so good, didn't it? I'd be a liar if I said that wasn't the case. Over the years, thankfully, the Lord has tempered me, and I'm certainly by no means over, have overcome that tendency. I think I see it a little further as it's coming than I used to. But it's still there. And so it's important. You know, one of the reasons why we, I strive to be so gospel-centered is, is yes for your sake. But it also keeps me grounded. Is if I'm gospel-centered, then I'm continuously each and every week confronted with the fact, this is not my own message. This is Christ and it's for his people. And it forces me to this position of humility because frankly, some weeks, some days, I need forced some days I kick against those goats a lot like Paul did. And it's hard to do. And I need this message that I need to decrease. In Paul in first, pardon me, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he says this, But we will not boast beyond the limit. We will only boast with regard to the area of influence God has assigned to us to reach even you. For we're not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. We were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. But we don't boast beyond the limit in the labors of others. And our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself or is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. So the Lord has given Paul great ministry and his desire is to go beyond that. Right? We know from Romans 16 that he wanted to go to Spain and go even further into Europe, if possible. But the boasting needs to be in the Lord, and the boasting needs to be in that the Lord is the one who commends us. The Lord is the one who approves us. The Lord is the one who gave us this ministry. You see, that text there, there is accomplishments that Paul did, but they're always couched in and always referred back to the work that the Lord is doing through them and the work that the Lord has given them to do. And so for one particular ministry like Paul, it might be to go all over the world, but this is a far cry from you getting an email blast saying, Paul the Apostle, come into your town. <laughs> He's got a great music ministry with him. He's been to all kinds of countries and preached everywhere. You should see his scars. He's radical for Jesus, right? What a far cry from that is a text like this that says we don't boast. We want to come and just preach the gospel. If your faith increases, praise God. 
All glory goes to him. You see, the one who boasts ought to be boasting in the Lord. The one whom the Lord commends is the one who is approved. So the Lord has given us this year, this ministry, so I need to think about a text like this and say, Lord, may you increase and I decrease. So whether it's 20 or 20,000, it doesn't matter. You see, the matter, what matters is faithfulness to the ministry God has given, faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then Job goes on and he adds, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. And I think Paul here, pardon me, Paul, John here, he, he's contrasting himself with Christ. Christ is from above all, but John himself is earthly. You see, he, he's humbling himself. He's speaking in a way where he's decreasing himself and his own influence to his disciples as he's talking to them. And he's influencing or increasing Christ's glory. And he's saying glorious things that he is the one who is above all. He's the one who's above all. Because he who comes from heaven is above all. I'm reading a book on the attributes of God. And I, I love, I, keep, I find myself coming back to that topic over and over and over. And boy, just, just reading about God, even things that I kind of sort of think, oh, I know this. It's just wonderful to see and hear fresh and anew and just to be reminded of. And, and this one truth I was reading about earlier this week is that, that God is all-powerful because he's all-present. If he wasn't all-present, then he couldn't be all-powerful. And if he wasn't all-powerful, then he couldn't be all-present. And it just speaks to the simplicity of God, meaning that all his attributes are co-mingled with all of his other attributes. There are parts in God like we experience, right? I have a heart. It's not the same as my brain. My blood isn't the same as my um, nervous system. I've made up of parts. Part of, parts of me I can live without, and parts of me I can't. But God is simple in that all his being is all of his being. And there's not one segregated part of God apart from one other segregated part of God. And so the question comes, well, what about Christ? What about he who took on human flesh? Has he not segregated himself from all of those attributes of God by taking on human flesh? Well, the answer is no. The answer is God is perfectly capable and right to, if it's his perfect plan and purpose, to invade human history and take on human form and become a part of his own creation. And he did it here in this instance for the sake of his own people and ultimately his own glory. So he ultimately is glorifying himself by coming into cre creation and taking on creation and becoming God in the flesh. So when it says he who is from heaven is above all, we're talking about the infinite, all-powerful, all-existing, always in every single part of time and space, owning all of the universe because he created all of the universe. He is above all. How ridiculous is it for the disciples of John to come to John and go, hey, he's baptizing more people than you. And he's the creator of all things. See what just a little bit of perspective does? And John here gives his disciples 
and praise God, us, a little bit of perspective. He who comes from heaven is above all because everything is his already. He wants to go out and baptize people. Awesome, wonderful. Glory be to God. He wants to go out in the wilderness and be tempted by Satan apart and away from us. Praise all glory be to God. He wants to come into Jerusalem and ride in on a donkey as if he's the conquering king. Glory be to God. He wants to go to the cross and atone for sins for the purpose of saving his people for all time and eternity. Glory be to God. He is the one who is in control. All things are his. He is the one who is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He must increase and I must decrease. Because he bears witness to what he has seen. And yet no one receives his testimony. No one receives his testimony because we've already seen in the Gospel of John that we are all blind. We love the darkness rather than light. We've already seen in this same chapter that unless we've been born again, we are incapable to rece of receiving this testimony. But verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Beloved, the greatest testimony that we can give is to the truthfulness of God. We, we glorify God the best when we believe God. When we believe God, we're testifying that the words he's saying are true. Uh, likewise, in contrast, the greatest sin we could commit is to deny the truthfulness of God. When we deny God and say, oh, no, 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 no. You know God, or God isn't like this, or God isn't like that. We don't take God at his word. We are liars, and the truth of God is not in us. That's one thing to debate a passage and to try to figure it out, but it's a whole other thing to say, I don't believe the truth of this book. I don't believe the truth of the gospel. I reject what I know to be the image of God within me, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to determine my own fate and live my own life. I will be my own God. So this is why he says this. Whoever receives God's testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. It doesn't mean we're, we approve of God. Our seal is now set. Now, now God's got it because he's got our seal of approval. No, the whole point is that we are doing the greatest thing that we were created and, in fact, designed to do from the beginning, and that's ascribe praise and glory as we worship God Almighty. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he who gives the Spirit without measure. I love here as John is concluding his statements here, that he just brings us into the heavenlies and gives us, almost in passing, Trinitarian doctrine. The Father loves the Son, and the Son is the one who gives spirit without measure, and everything has been given into his hand. 
The love of God is Trinitarian. And one of the greatest things that we see about God that we should rejoice in is that God is a God of love because that means he's a God who communicates. And he didn't create deistically and wind the universe up and wing, let it go like a wind-up toy that's walking across God's front room kind of thing at the pleasure of some little cosmic baby or something. God's love is a communicating love because he eternally communicates with himself in the members of the Trinity. And when we read about God's love in Scripture, we need to read it not in exclusion of that understanding of God's love. We don't want to think of it as some sentimental kind of, you know, pulling at the heartstrings. Jesus saved the puppy dog. I don't know. Remember that painting that we that was up there in that old church where he picks up that dog? Uh, it's not that sentimental kind of thing. It's not, you know, <clears throat> Jesus is my boyfriend kind of thing, like some of these modern worship songs. It's so much greater than that. It is the eternal trinity in love with itself as each one of the members are loving one another and communicating that love. And they do it through these wonderful displays of each member's own glory. And they do it not just in time, but in eternity, but in time. They do it and we are allowed to participate in this process of being involved in the inter-Trinitarian love of God as the Father has ordained whom he would redeem. Christ comes to secure that redemption and the Spirit comes to apply that redemption. So the Spirit is given without measure because the Father loves the Son and has given all things into the Son's hand. And this is eternal life. That we believe these things to be true. That the glory of God is at stake. The glory of God is at stake. The glory of God is at stake. He must increase and I must decrease. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. To close, two things I want to point out, and one we've already talked about, but one is there is no such thing as neutrality. You either have been born again and you have set your seal upon God's truthfulness and have worshipped him and glorified him as the God he's revealed himself to be, or you do not obey the Son of God and therefore you do not have eternal life. There is no third option. There is no kind of sort of Christian. And there's no really good unbeliever. And there's nothing even in between. There's no spectrum of people who live it is black and white. There is no neutrality. It is either, it is or. Either you have eternal life because you have heard the words of Christ and you've believed it and you've trusted him and repented of your sins, or you do not and therefore the wrath of God abides upon you and therefore I plead with you, turn to Christ. Come to Christ. Trust in him and believe in him alone because he and he alone is the means by which you can be saved. He and he alone is the one who bore the wrath that you so clearly deserve, even right here in this text, that you honestly know abides upon you. You know that you are deserving of God's judgment. And yet, 
He has seen fit to save sinners from their sins if we would believe and trust in him as Lord and Savior. And that brings me to my last point, which is that in doing so, even in believing and trusting the gospel, we're acknowledging the words of verse 30. He must increase and I must decrease. I'm acknowledging my own inadequacy of saving myself. I'm acknowledging my own inability to come to Christ on my own. I'm acknowledging my own uselessness in all things that matter spiritually and eternally. And I'm seeing him as the savior of my soul, seeing him as the great God of great gods, seeing him as the bridegroom, seeing him as the one who gives my joy completeness. Beloved, if there was ever a text that just speaks to the truth of the name of our church, I think this is definitely one of those places. Because Jesus is sovereign and all things are his, and Lord gives us great joy because of that. Amen? Father God, we love you, and we praise you for the grace and the mercy that you provide for us. Because, Lord, frankly, don't have any hope apart from the love and the grace that you've given to us. But we rejoice in it and we ask, Lord, that we would have this mindset that even John had with himself, that we would decrease and that you would increase, that even in our lives, in our ministries, that we would be acknowledging that you're the one who has given us everything and so whether it's cleaning up after the service, or whether it's preaching a sermon, whether it's counting money, or whether it's counseling others. Everything that we have, we only have because you have seen fit to bestow it upon us, and it's by your grace. So therefore, may we glorify you with everything that we have, for your great name's sake, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen.